Hey Amarillo, I'm Jason Boyette, and you're listening to Hey Amarillo, the interview podcast featuring some of the most interesting people and stories of Amarillo, Texas. This is Chapter 7 in a temporary reformatting of the show. As of this recording, Amarillo's Public Health Department has confirmed more than 100 cases of the COVID-19 coronavirus in Amarillo, with three deaths and three confirmed recoveries. I've been documenting how members of the community have been impacted by the pandemic, trying to capture the human stories that don't always get covered in traditional media. And so I've doubled the frequency of podcast episodes. The show now releases on Mondays and Thursdays instead of just once a week. So I'm particularly grateful for my sponsors. Hey Amarillo is sponsored this week by Jimmy John's Gourmet Sandwiches. Jimmy John's has three locations in Amarillo, all of which are owned and operated by an Amarillo resident. And right now, these restaurants are giving out Little John sandwiches for free to all kids who are high school age and younger. From 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. every Monday through Friday. It's every weekday. Meanwhile, all sides and drink sizes are just a dollar. Jimmy John's has also been helping feed hospital staff, too. I've seen the posts all over social media. I'm just super grateful for Charles, the owner, and his investment in this community. So go support Jimmy John's. Now, on to the episode. For this one, and since our city is pretty isolated at the moment, I decided it would be informative to reach out to former Amarillo residents who now live in other parts of the country, just to see what the outbreak looks like where they live. How has life changed for them? What's their daily life like? The release date for this episode is April 9th. These interviews were recorded on April 8th. Of course, things may have changed by the time you listen. So here's the show. Hi, I'm Micah Boyette Hohorst. I was born and raised in Amarillo and left in 1997 for college and am back two to three times a year because I love it so and because I love my family that all lives in Amarillo, including you, Jason Boyette, my brother. Let's make that clear. You are my sister. Um, I, so I am currently your sister. a family podcast. <laughs> yes, as we speak, a family podcast. And you live in San Francisco. How long have you lived there? We moved to San Francisco um, eleven years ago, and we did. We've been there since then, except for one little stint in Austin. So a long time in San Francisco. Okay, so tell me what San Francisco has been like over the past three to four weeks. I, I know that as a city, uh, a lot of the restrictions that most of the country is now under, uh, that, that San Francisco was one of the first places to start to implement those. Right. Yeah, we were really one of the first hotspots in the country. And it felt uh, maybe like it, it felt a little more real here for a little while than it did in the rest of the country. The week of March, I guess that was like March 8th or 9th, I went ahead and took my youngest son. I have three boys. My youngest is four. And I took him out of preschool a week before all the schools shut down because I was worried about his immune system um, being a little weaker than most kids. So we have kind of been in lockdown since then. The next week, my other boys' um, schools shut down. And so we've been going strong here in shelter in place for a while. What it's been like here is I I feel like for the most part, culturally, San Francisco seems to be a place where 
people have not really pushed back on the restrictions. Um, I've really respected that about our city and been impressed by how everyone has committed to it. And um, so, you know, I haven't seen my friends and everybody is following the rules. And in that sense, it feels like things are changing and the tide seems to be changing here. Um, it feels like it's working. Right. I, I know that just having talked to you, you guys live in the Bay Area and from your house, you can see out onto the water. And for several days in early March, one of those cruise ships without a home, you know, that was carrying yeah. a, a large outbreak of coronavirus was just kind of sitting there, you know, waiting for s- San Francisco to say, okay, unload all your passengers here. And you just got to watch that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was lit up at night. We could see it from our deck. And I think that that kind of made it feel more real for me. Um, That was when I decided to take ACE out of school because I was like, there are people with coronavirus on (laughs) on that cruise ship that I can see and no one's letting them into port. And this is real and it's happening right here. And it's about to be something big. Um, so yeah, it's been an interesting thing to follow. I have a, a friend who is actually an infectious disease doctor at San Francisco general hospital. And he sends out weekly emails to our friend group, just letting us know how things are looking and, and what it's been like for him. And he was his email this past week was really encouraging just that he was run. He's been running the COVID ICU in San Francisco General Hospital this whole week and the beds are not all full. Like it's just quieting down. And and that has, that's been amazing to hear, even as things are so scary everywhere else. um, I'm really grateful that whatever is happening here in San Francisco seems to be working. Tell me about some of your neighbors and the community around you. I, I know that San Francisco has a very large population of Asian Americans. I know that a lot of them, you know, maybe have had relatives living in China where the outbreak began and, and have kept up with it from there. I mean, is that something that you've heard? Maybe, maybe a reason your community has taken it more seriously. Yeah, I think so. At one point when we were early on, um, a friend of mine had, had a conversation with a woman in our church who is Asian American and was living in China, I guess, when SARS happened. In, was that 2009? Yeah, I think and, so. And she was like, why aren't people wearing masks? I mean, this was like before we had our shelter-in-place order. But she was like, what happened when SARS happened? And you know, the friend was, was sort of like, well, it didn't really come to America. And she was like, I just would have thought that everyone would know what to do right now. And, <laughs> and so that was like really interesting to me. Nope. Uh, no, we don't know what to do. <laughs> we have not gone through this. So, um, but I do think there's something to that early on before most people were staying home or taking precautions. Um, a lot of the Asian American population in the city were wearing masks. And I do think that there is something to that. Like there's just culturally um, an awareness of having gone through something like this before where um, other Americans haven't. I I wanted to ask you a little bit about your home life. Um, You know, for listeners who don't know you, you 
are a writer like me and also like me, you host a podcast. Um, your podcast is, is one that's, it, it's called The Lucky Few and it's directed at families within the Down syndrome community because your youngest son, Ace, has Down syndrome, my nephew. Yes. And one of the things that we'd been talking about was how you worry, because Ace is involved in so many different therapies, um, you worry about maybe setbacks because he can't do the therapies that he used to be able to do on a daily basis. What has that been like in trying to do that over video, using Zoom? I mean, how is Ace doing? Well, in some ways, Ace is living his best life. He was yesterday while I was trying to help his brothers do their homework and Chris was on a call. I heard the bath going and went in to find him fully clothed, just like having a great time spraying the water all over the entire bathroom. So just trying to stay clean. <laughs> he knows. Just, he knows. Yeah, we I I think one of the things that this has revealed to me and so much of my journey with Ace who's almost five, he'll be five this weekend, has revealed to me the gap between people of like people who have the means to give their children with disabilities everything that they want to give them and people who don't have the means to do that. And this COVID crisis has revealed that once again to me because Right now, the school district really can't step in and give him the services that he needs. He needs speech. He needs physical therapy. He needs occupational therapy. He um, has an autism diagnosis and needs ABA therapy. And all of these things that are in his IEP, the school district doesn't have the resources to meet at, as we're all at home. And what what our family does have the resources for is insurance that will cover outside therapies for him. So he does private speech and private occupational therapy through our insurance. And those are the therapies that we've been able to continue at home over teletherapy on Zoom or whatever. And um, so once again, even though I am, I worry for him, I wish he had the socialization of the classroom. Now we've made it into almost four weeks of not being in school. And, um, and he needs time with friends. He needs time, time with professionals. But at the same time, I know that he has it so much better than kids who don't have the ability to, their parents can't, you know, afford to have private therapies that are stepping yeah. in right now for them. So, um, I'm grateful for the things that we do have and um, yeah, grateful that my husband is able to work from home and that his work is not demanding that he go out in into the virus every day and thankful that my kids can learn and that we have devices at home and, you know, all the things this for everybody, I think is revealing privilege and, um, and how many people in our country don't have access to the things that we need if we're going to shelter in place. Yeah, I, I think that's right. Um, one of the things that that I remember you saying, uh, speaking of of Chris, you know that that his job has allowed him to work from home, but it he's also been taking the initiative to, um, you know, to help deliver some food to homeless residents of San Francisco. And I, I wondered about the community there. You know, in Amarillo, people are stepping up. There are groups dedicated to meeting needs, to helping people with groceries. Are you seeing the same thing in a larger, more compact urban setting like San Francisco? 
Yeah, I've been really encouraged by what I've seen. Uh, we, our neighborhood has its own Facebook group that where people can reach out and, you know, share what they need. People, elderly can reach out and have other people go shopping for them. Um, we were able to like deliver masks to a doctor's house so that he could take them to the hospital. Um, I feel like that has brought together the neighborhood in ways that I haven't seen before. Um, there's This is probably something happening in Amarillo too, but um, in this kind of densely packed urban neighborhood where there's not really yards to put signs in, there are signs in windows that just say thank you to our healthcare workers and and um, things like that that are sweet to see up. And then, yeah, um, in terms of my husband delivering food, there's our church has a, a community center and a sober living home in the Tenderloin, which is one of the um, most challenging neighborhoods in San Francisco where there's a lot of uh, homelessness and mental health issue, issues and addiction. And our community center there provides warm meals. They they kind of see themselves as a living room for people who don't have a living room in the Tenderloin. And because it's not safe to gather for those meals, um, there have been um, just a, a whole lot of people volunteering to put those meals together into to go to go boxes and step outside and hand them out to the people who need them. Um, Chris has been going one morning a week and delivering groceries to people in SROs and um, in kind of more difficult housing spots um, so that they don't have to go out to get groceries. So there's, there's a lot of beautiful good stuff happening and it's always amazing to see how people are willing to um, serve each other when when we're in a moment like this but before we wrap it up I'd, I'd like to kind of hear what the grocery store situation is like in San Francisco I mean mentioning that, that Chris is delivering groceries are you experiencing the same kinds of shortages and limited hours and those kinds of things that maybe we have here yeah, definitely. Um, I I haven't so much seen the limited hours, but there's definitely shortages. I mean, the same toilet paper issue as everywhere, right? And then, then lots of shortages in flour. I don't know if you've had that in Amarillo, but there we did very is, early. I think it's okay. better um, okay. at this point. But everybody wanted to just go home and bake, I guess. Yes. All the hipsters in San Francisco went started their sourdough starters and are baking sourdough as much as possible. I even read an article yesterday about somebody designing a digital, like <laughs> an online map to where they had hidden starters <laughs> in trees or something, something ridiculous. That feels um, very San Francisco. It does. Uh, but yeah, the, the grocery stores are definitely empty shelves. Uh, and there's been an interesting setup where all of them have lines outside and with kind of tape on the ground so that everyone is standing six feet apart, like all the way down to the sidewalk. And then a certain amount are let in at a time. So uh, thankfully, because I'm asthmatic, my husband has been doing all the grocery shopping for the family. So I haven't really had to experience it except for pictures. So, Micah, the, the question I've been asking all of my guests to close out these conversations is what is giving you hope? And I know that, you know, you're a, 
a writer, you you think about spiritual issues all the time, and and I figure you probably have a good answer to that. So tell me something that's kind of giving you a sense of optimism right now. You know, I I've had this kind of thought since actually since our grandfather passed away like seven years ago about how grief for a a collective unit can be like a restart button, like a refresh for everyone. Um, help us like connect individually and as a group back to the center of who we are. And I've been kind of feeling that in this, like in my community, um, in my church, as we have met virtually, in my family, as we've learned new ways to be together at home. Um, and kind of, you know, the things that were anxious making for us, the driving, the commuting, the, all the things that we were trying to get the kids to and how it's grounded us back into this space of like, oh, here's what matters. You know, the kids don't really miss their soccer practice. and um, But we are laughing so much and we're having such a blast playing board games and our walks together every afternoon. And I feel like that is the gift of grief and the gift of trials is that it does seem to kind of break us open in a new way and, and remind us of what matters. I, I saw my next door neighbor a couple of days ago outside and she's recently widowed and I was checking in on her and she told me that she just spoke to her brother for the first time in five years and that they were going to have a Zoom call and she was really wow. excited. And I, I think that there's a lot of, probably a lot of stories like that of whatever it is that grief and fear and anxiety can do to us. I think if we are willing to let it, it can kind of break us open into something really beautiful. Um, so that's, that's what's giving me hope right now. All right. Micah Boyette Hohorst, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Jace. My name is Tom Patterson. I grew up in Canyon, Texas and went to WT. And I now live in Brooklyn, New York for the last 19 years. Tom, what do you do in, uh, in Brooklyn? I'm an administrator of special education, which means that I support a group of 164 different schools on how to best meet the needs of their students with disabilities around programming and uh, pedagogical things, as well as just classroom behavior, structures, discipline, everything else. Okay, we'll, we'll get into a, a little bit about your work and that reality right now. But before that part, just tell me what it's like living in New York, which obviously is is the center of the pandemic right now in the United States. What, what, what's happening there at the moment? You know, it's interesting because what I see happening in New York is what a lot of the country sees happening in New York because I am in my apartment and rarely do I get a chance to go out and see anything morgues being built outside of hospitals or in Central Park or down by the waterfront and new trucks brought in to house bodies and medical professionals being called from all over the country to try to come here to help stop what's happening with the virus. The thing that I see most is just the inside of my apartment because we are following the guidelines. One thing about New York that is great is 
when New Yorkers are in this situation, we work to find some way to come together. So every night at seven o'clock, the windows are open and people are cheering for the healthcare professionals who don't have a choice to stay in their homes. And you can hear that throughout the neighborhoods and it gives a chance to sort of collectively thank people who are out there doing the work. I know that living conditions, you know, a, a New York apartment is not um, quite the same size as a typical home in Amarillo. So while we're sheltered in place, you know, with three bedroom houses, uh, your reality may be different. So tell me a little bit about what it's been like just staying in, in a certain place for this many weeks. Well, so I have to say that I am lucky for the space that I have. I have a space that is larger than many, many New Yorkers. And sometimes that's a numerous people in a one-bedroom home with one computer or no computers trying to navigate living within this space throughout this time. So they don't necessarily have the space to spread out. Uh, people are on top of each other and um, not necessarily able to address education, much less their own personal spaces as well. So it's, it's a challenge for people here for sure. What can you tell me about just the attitudes of um, of maybe the people that you know, whether you see them in person or not or, or from your balcony, but but friends that you've talked to about how the city is dealing with this collectively? I mean, are there people that are pushing back against some of the restrictions or is everybody okay in doing with you know what the mayor, what the governor has said? I would say the majority of the people are following the restrictions because they know it's for the best. However, in a city as large as New York, there are still people who are pushing back, which is just really frustrating knowing that when I see someone who's walking too close to other people that they could potentially spread the virus farther than it's already being spread. But I think the outlook of most New Yorkers is always the same. It's just, we're going to get through this and whatever we find on the end, we will pick up the pieces for. And New Yorkers are very supportive of their neighbors. Uh, many of my neighbors are paying restaurants to deliver food to hospital staff and other people who are not able to get food. So trying to reach out and meet the needs of the neighbors who are in small businesses and their workers while they are at home and feeling stuck, recognizing that there are people who have difficulties to deal with for business and work. How often have you and Johnny uh, been able to get out of the apartment? Like, uh, what, what's your schedule like in terms of getting groceries and, and maybe getting some fresh air? So we are able to order online. So we do that. Uh, Johnny goes out once a day to exercise. I don't get out as often. I have pretty bad asthma. And so I stay in just for myself, but also better. I'm not out and about because who knows what I could take to someone else. We do have a shared outdoor space that we will go and uh, spend some time on, on the roof. And everyone on the roof is more than six feet apart and is very respectful of that space. But I have been out once in the last 10 days or so, other than just on the roof. Tell me about your, uh, your work situation and you know how you've been administering some of your duties and, and how some of those kids that you're working with have been able to learn over the past couple of weeks? So one of the biggest challenges is switching a school system that deals with 1.1 million children into your remote learning. And 
making sure they had the technology, the ability to get on technology, and that there's also have an understanding of how to use that technology. So the majority of my work has been since I've been at home, working with the teachers on how to use the online platforms to try to meet the needs of students with different learning needs. So how can you flip classrooms? How can you create differentiated lessons? And just really trying to let teachers know that they can still use these platforms to meet the needs of students with disabilities. Families are poor and have food issues and a lot of insecurities that they're facing outside of classrooms. So reminding schools and teachers that that's another issue. And they're so strong at that and good at that. I don't really need much reminding. What's something that's giving you hope right now? Maybe in you know, the impact in your own life, maybe in the community's response, but is there anything that's giving you a sense of optimism? I think for me, I know enough people who are working to make this the best it possibly can be for people who are suffering the most and recognizing that whatever I need to do to make sure I'm here on the end of this to help pick up the pieces, uh, I will do. And if that's staying in, then I'll do that. Right. Tom Patterson, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. So I'm Natalie Schlabs. I live in Nashville, Tennessee, and um, I didn't grow up in Amarillo, but I moved to Amarillo from Hereford after I graduated and lived there until I moved here. How long have you been in Nashville? I think this fall will be six years. Yeah, I think that's right. Okay, and, and just briefly before we start, Natalie, uh, tell listeners uh, what you do for a career and a little bit about just your home situation, where you're living. Yeah, so I am doing music here in Nashville. That can kind of vary from week to week what that looks like. A couple of years ago, I was doing a lot more touring, but since I had my son, I've been staying at home mainly, but I've still been doing music and um, playing shows whenever I can. So, um, yeah, my husband and I both work from home, and we are uh, in East Nashville, and we kind of, we both do music and other things. I typically do Airbnb, and I write and record. Okay, and tell me what the... I guess, realities of daily life in Nashville have been like over the past two or three weeks? Yeah, well, it's been progressive, I'm sure, like everywhere else. When we initially were getting worried about all this, you'd go to the grocery store, and it seems like you'd see a few people wearing gloves or masks. Um, but now, it's like everybody has a mask on, or gloves, or both, and they're monitoring You know how many people can go into the store and so it just feels kind of eerie in that sense because it's so bizarre from regular life and then I mean I think for us we've we've lost some childcare, which has made a really big difference in our work and what we're able to do but for some of my other friends um who do touring full-time it's like the springtime is going to be this big you know money-making tours for them usually um, and then those have all gotten canceled. So I think a lot of people have, they have it pretty bad because they, you know, a lot of people here do music full time and then all of their 
upcoming shows have gotten canceled and that's really their main source of income typically. So, um, yeah, it feels really weird. Most of the restaurants, um, have either shut down or just gone to, to go orders. And, um, you just don't see really many people driving, which is obviously good, but it just feels so different, you know, from what it, what it is normally. Plus Nashville had gone through, you know, the damage from the tornado, which I guess was just a couple of weeks before, you know, the, the calls from authorities to start staying home. Is that right? Oh yeah. I mean, it, we were already hurting from that and it was like things were already being shifted around and there were already restaurants that were closed because of damage. Uh, there was a lot of damage in East Nashville and Germantown um, close by. And yeah, so we were already in a weird place. It's almost hard to <laughs> remember that. Oh yeah, we were, we had this tornado and we were all in this strange place. And now this, you know, so it's, it's been a really, really difficult time for Nashville, especially, but one thing that is great about the city is everyone sort of bands together in difficult times. So there have been a lot of really um, good things in the midst of really hard things. Is Tennessee under an official shelter in place order? Yes. Mm -hmm. How long ago was that instituted? Do you remember? Oh, that's a great question. I want to say two weeks ago. Okay. Yeah. Did, did you know a lot of people who maybe (laughs) began to self-isolate before that? I mean, who, who weren't waiting for a directive, they just decided, okay, we're going to stay home. Yeah. I mean, most of me and my friends started to quarantine about a week before that happened. Um, and we just didn't feel, I mean, I was reading about flattening the curve and I just didn't feel like I could in good conscience go out and do the same thing. So we started hunkering down before that. And a lot of the people I knew did too. What have the grocery stores been like in Nashville? Is it, I mean, have, have you been able to kind of get into a rhythm of shopping maybe once a week or I mean, what's, what's that um, been <laughs> like where you live? Yeah, I go to the store once a week, every Monday. And that is actually a really happy day for me to get out of the house and, do something, um, which is ironic because I just have never liked it before. Um, but I, I mean, it, it varies from store to store. I have found that going to local grocery stores, like our Mexican market that's close by is one of the best ways that we can get groceries because it's not picked over and, um, it's a lot quieter and there are less people inside. So you, you know, you can distance a little bit easier but most of the stores, like Trader Joe's and Publix and all that, they, they're pretty strict about how many people are let in the store. Um, lots of people with masks on. When I was at Trader Joe's um, this week, all of the workers had masks on, and um, they're just being very, very cautious. So it's changed pretty drastically in a week's time. I know the the timing of the pandemic really had an impact on you and your career, not just from the opportunity to play live music, but you were in the middle of a Kickstarter to raise money yeah. for an album. Uh, so tell me a little bit about like what the thinking process was for you and, and maybe what you might be doing going forward. Well, I was considering canceling just simply because of the tornado. And I, I didn't feel like I could put enough effort into it because of all that was happening around me. I was trying to, volunteer as much as I could and you know it was just a weird time to be promoting myself and then 
all of this happened. <laughs> and, you know, it was pretty clear a few days out from ending that I wasn't going to make my goal. And I frankly was just really over it because there were so many important things happening in the world that I just didn't feel like I had energy. So I went ahead and canceled it. And as of now, I'm still moving forward with um, my releases as planned. And I'm just kind of making it work. Some people just started sending me their pledges, like what they would have sent me on Kickstarter. They started sending to like my Venmo. And so that allowed me to pay for photography and like a little bit of my PR. And so I'm kind of just going month to month until I can figure out um, maybe another launch or something, but it's just, it's all kind of up in the air. And I just decided to go on with the music and then try to figure out some of the costs or try to simplify a little bit. What kinds of things are you hearing from fellow musicians? I mean, obviously, a lot of them are not in a workplace. You know, their workplace is yeah. uh, performance venues or studios, um, and so they're at home. What What has it been like just to be a musician cooped up? Are some starting to do, like, in-living-room concerts and, and stuff like that? Yeah, a lot of us um, are doing live streams. I was a part of an online festival um, called Shedden and Sing that's still going on every weekend, and that's great. I mean, I think a lot of people have jumped on in some capacity of doing online shows. Um, and I think that provides some income because they'll have a suggested donation, and that can be helpful, but it definitely doesn't match what they would have made typically going on the road. Some of my friends that I talked to are really devastated by this because they, like my friend Caitlin, who's a cellist, she was going on tour, and she was making really good money for the first time in a while working for a country artist. And then all of this happened and canceled every single one of her shows. So now she's left trying to figure out, um, you know, if she's filing for unemployment or just how she's going to make ends meet. And so I think a lot of them are really stressed and really um, kind of grieved by everything that has been lost in this process. One of the things, Natalie, that, that I've been asking my guests, and, and this is an awkward transition from where we just ended that question, but it's it's what has been giving you hope. I mean, is is there something in the process, maybe how you've seen your community come together, or maybe some changes in your personal life? Is there something that, that has given you some optimism about the current moment? Yeah. Well, I think um, just personally taking it day by day has been really helpful because I've been trying to connect with some of my friends every day in some capacity. So a few nights ago, um, we did a zoom meeting, like six of us and just played a game. And, you know, that just gave me so much joy and, and it felt normal enough to kind of just fill me up. And so I feel like I'm just stay, trying to stay connected with my community as much as I can. And that really is giving me a lot of hope because I feel a lot less alone, um, when I do that. And it's, I don't know. I, I feel like, yes, we're, we're missing out, not being able to hang out in person, but we can still talk and we can still see each other's faces with modern technology. So that's, that's giving me a lot of life. All right. Natalie Schlabs, thank you for being on the podcast. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Jason. I'm Jonathan Baker. I live in Portland, Maine, the real Portland. And I, uh, I'm from, uh, Canyon, Texas. And, uh, I've worked for years as a writer uh, and writing coach and writing teacher in West Texas. Um, 
And I still write for Amarillo Magazine some, and I uh, still work for High Plains Public Radio, even from Maine, a little bit. So, yeah. How long have you been in Maine? I've been here since August, uh, since really the end of August, 1st of September. Um, So I don't know how long that is, seven or eight months. Okay. And tell me what the, uh, I guess, just everyday life has been like around where you live in Portland, um, you know, since mid-March, since the pandemic really started to hit here? Well, um, I think, I suspect it was like everywhere else, where the way that I shifted my life began to uh, change in increments, you know, like, um, I remember going to this diner called Marcy's Diner that I love, and it's like this old, old school kind of diner where I go once a week and read a book. And they were talking about how they couldn't tell if, uh, if their, uh, if the number of people eating there had dropped because it was still not the tourist season yet and the cruise ships hadn't shown up. So it was slow anyway, and any given week could be slow. And, uh, and then the guy, but the guy that was cooking, you know, was like, well, I was looking forward to, you know, self-isolating and watching March Madness, but they just canceled it. And things were starting to feel kind of real. And I remember going to my favorite coffee shop and they weren't selling, I couldn't get a coffee in a mug. I could only get it in paper cups. And it, you know, you, there were these little signs, you know, and then it sort of happened real rapidly. All of a sudden it seemed like where it was like, oh, uh, I'm just going to be at home from now on. And I think um, that happened for me before it happened for a lot of people. As you, this is probably true of you, Jason, too, I assume. Um, I'm a writer, so uh, I usually work in coffee shops, but it wasn't hard for me to shift that work to my bedroom, you know? So, you know, I've been, I've been doing my regular work at my dining room table and then I've been doing my writing my novel at a little desk in my room kind of separating my creative work from my paying work in that way uh and you know trying to keep my teenager in the house um and you know it's been weird I mean it's been weird I go out for walks now and and this is a hustly bustly kind of city and it's a pedestrian city even before coronavirus days would go by when I wouldn't get in my car, I would just walk to dinner, walk to coffee shops, walk to the movie theater, walk to the bookstore. Um, and now I go for these walks and, you know, uh, I'll see a handful of people, you know, the homeless people are still out some, but everything's closed. Of course, um, we're under a shelter in place order and, uh, yeah, I mean it's it's a spooky kind of thing um, uh, to be. Th- this is supposed to be the time when the cruise ships really start showing up, and all the people from New York City start coming up. And Maine is is uh, vacation land; they call it. It even says that on the license plates. And and it's it's where everyone goes when the weather starts to warm up. But um, they're not really here, except a lot of the really wealthy New Yorkers who own homes in Maine, and they are sheltered in there in their rich people homes along the coast, you know, they like left New York city and who can blame them with what's going on down there. How do the locals feel about that? You know, I've heard stories of, of vacation towns, whether it's in Colorado or Idaho, you know, where you get this influx of tourists out of the hot spots, and those places are worried, you know, that, that they might be bringing the virus to these more rural locations. Is that sort of the feeling in Portland? Well, it's interesting. Um, we have about 550 cases, something like that right now. And we've had uh, not many, like 10 deaths or something like that. So it, 
uh, Maine is a lot like Amarillo in the sense that we're on the edge of the universe out here in a lot of ways, even though I can drive to New York city in five hours, but people forget we're up here. And, uh, so it hasn't filtered up here in the way that it could. Although of those 550 cases, I bet 500 of them are within three miles of my house. Like Portland, Maine is the biggest city in Maine and it's, uh, it's kind of the travel hub, tourist hub. And so it's where all the cases are. Although when I say it's the biggest city in Maine, there's only 70,000 people here. So the city itself is about a third the size of Amarillo. Although the greater Portland area is 500,000. So that's twice the size of the population of the panhandle. Um, so that's just a, to give you an idea of like how big it is, but it's, it's very compact. And I think that's why, like it's a pedestrian city. Like I said, people are interacting closely with each other. It's one of those places where you have dinner kind of like in New York and your elbow can be like right next to the people at the next table or whatever. So uh, it's easy for it to transmit here. So we're all kind of uh, locked down here, but New Hampshire had a real bad outbreak. If you'll remember before, even before New York really started to take off, I think New Hampshire was a, a point of concern and we're only an hour from the New Hampshire border. So that, so that became, you know, something to worry about. I know that, you know, Maine is, is in New England and, and they're the people of the panhandle probably have, you know, certain perspectives about New Englanders and the East coast and that kind of stuff. But it's, it's also a very independent minded, you know, state. Yeah. I, I wonder what, residents, how residents are taking, you know, whether it's the shelter in place requirements, whether it's how seriously they take the virus itself. I mean, what has that been like? What have you seen? They are, it's similar to the panhandle. Again, I would say that Portland is similar to Austin in that, uh, a lot of the creative people here, a lot of the, uh, freelancers, um, you know, the chefs, the filmmakers, the musicians are living in Portland and, then once you get out of Portland, it's, uh, it's very rural. It's very conservative. You know, there's all that wealth along the coast, but you get two miles away from the coast and it, uh, the Trump signs start to appear in yards and, uh, and it's very conservative. And those areas have not been taking it seriously. I've gone out to those areas. My best friend lives in Lewiston, Maine. Uh, and I've gone out, uh, before this really took off, but I, I went out there and people weren't taking it seriously, but I've gone out to pick up a piece of furniture since then. And you could tell people weren't quite taking it seriously. I was even at Trader Joe's and I don't mean to rub it in the face of your list. <laughs> I know that everybody in the band wishes they had a Trader Joe's and it's half the reason I live here, but, uh, <laughs> uh, I was, it's, the, it's, yeah, it's great. But, uh, I was in Trader Joe's and this woman said, I live out in, and I don't remember the name of the town, but this is, this is a point where people, uh, a couple of people were wearing masks in the store. All of the, you know, all the shelves were empty. And she said, why are all these shelves empty? Is it because of that virus thing? And, you know, this is like, I don't know, two weeks ago. So there was a real, there was a real sense that uh, the seriousness of this was not reaching into the rural areas of Maine. And if it was judging from what I've read online and stuff like that, from various Maine sources, people, in the same way that they are in the panhandle, you know, which I've been following, I just think it's some kind of plot or that it's being overblown by the media, you know, and I think we're at that point where when people start having, you know, friends die, then they'll start taking it seriously. But before that, 
people at, people in rural Maine are not taking it seriously. One of the things we've seen in Amarillo, and I'm, I'm sure you've seen this, is um, is a real increase in neighbors taking care of neighbors. You know, whether it's a Facebook group where people are trying to provide supplies to people, to you know, people making donations to the food bank or raising money or trying to support small businesses. Do you see that same sort of community coming together for the greater good where you live? Absolutely. Absolutely, I do. And I know that uh, I've been really heartened by what I've seen from uh, Lytton St. Stephen down in Amarillo and um, and their sort of cohort, Jenny and Zarillo and other people like that, like making deliveries. And it's like, I've, I've gotten a real sense of pride uh, about what what's going on back home with some people really coming together. And that is happening up here. Uh, my church, St. Luke's Cathedral in, here in Maine, you know, I watch it online every Sunday. So there's a lot of like stuff through my church, but I've seen also on Facebook, various groups and through the uh, Portland Press Herald, Herald, the newspaper stories about exactly those kinds of things happening. Um, but this is a very... Maine has a has a kind of pride that similar to what Texas has, and I uh, Mainers are very proud of their state, and they really do look out for each other. And there's a real sense of that. They're they're suspicious of outsiders, like any kind of touristy places where they take their money, but they kind of wish they would go away after that, you know. But they really know how to band together, and a lot of that, so much of that, has to do with the winter. I think one thing that's really struck me since I moved here is the way that everybody feels like they're part of the city here. Um, even the homeless. And, uh, my mother, uh, works at a homeless shelter in downtown Amarillo. She's an accountant there. I've never gotten a sense that people in Amarillo or are, you know, most people are aware of or much care about the homeless population in Amarillo, but here they feel like, you know, I see people talking to them. I see them like talking amongst each other. There's like laughter among them and, and, and I think that's because of the winter. We're all sort of like, we feel it coming, and then we all are kind of on this ship together. The tourists are all gone, and it's just us, and we have to, you know, have safe harbor somewhere, and we have to look out for each other. So I think that winter, repeated winters have re- prepared Maine for the coronavirus, if that makes sense. Yeah. And Baker, the last question I've been asking, and, and maybe this is territory we've already covered, but What's one thing that's really giving you hope right now? I mean, what's something, whether it's a personal thing in your own life or, or anything else that is, is fueling any kind of optimism you might have? I think there is a lot of good that can come out of this. I think there's been, um, and you know me, Jason, I'm not, <laughs> I, I think I would be seen as a like raging liberal uh, from some uh, viewpoints or from some people in, in Amarillo, but, but I'm not, I'm pretty much a centrist uh, but um, with that said, I think there's been a real sickness in this country, uh, really since the Reagan administration, since Reagan said, uh, you know, whatever it is, like the scariest sentence you can hear is, I'm, I'm here from the government and I'm here to help. Um, like, I think that's changing. I think people are going, wait a second, like, these corporations are not going to save us. These corporations did not show up with the ventilators. And this administration, um, and this is not about Democrat versus Republican, this is just about simple competence. This administration, we knew this all along, they have not uh, filled most of the vacancies in most of the uh, parts of the executive branch, you know, so 
um, they were shutting down various task forces and uh, firing scientists. And uh, those chickens are coming home to roost. There's a reason that we prepare for a rainy day, and the rainy day has come. And I think that there are lessons to be learned there. But I also think there are lessons to be learned that we as Americans, like, uh, we are not Democrats and Republicans. We are one nation. And we've got to have, we've got to keep a lookout for each other. And when this kind of stuff comes down, we have to be prepared and we have to vote people into office who are, I don't know, good enough at what they do to uh, look out for us and uh, to make sure that we have some, um, some safety measures in place um, so that people can go to the doctors, so that people can feed themselves, so that people um, don't lose their homes you know, in trying times like these. So I think there are lessons to be learned in ways that we can like prepare so that the next time this happens, it's not like this, you know? All right. Jonathan Baker, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I appreciate it. Hey, Jason, stay safe and take care of your family, man. Tell everybody down there I miss them. I'll do it. And that concludes the show. First, I want to say thanks to my four far-flung guests who made themselves available for an interview and to Angelina Marie for editing the podcast. If you listen to the show, I have a question for you. Would you mind completing a quick online survey? I know you're sitting at home. You probably don't have anything else to do. Maybe do a survey. This is part of a research project for West Texas A&M students about my podcast audience. And it'll take you less than a minute to click a few buttons. You can find it at bit.ly slash survey hey. That's B-I-T dot L-Y slash survey hey. These students get a grade on it. They need a bunch of people to complete it. The show is made possible every week thanks to my executive producers, Valerie Gooch, Joshua Rafe, Jess Heredia, Josh Wood, Chris Zelda, Patrick Burns, Wilson Lemieux, Wes Reeves, Jason Burr, Katie Linger, Neil Nossiman, Jennifer Callahan, Ryan Pennington, and Corey Burns. You, too, can be one of those names by supporting the show financially through patreon.com slash heyamarillo. This has been episode 136. My name is Jason Boyette. Stay safe, stay home, love your neighbor.